We are looking at Psalm, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 13, which is traditionally called the love chapter of Scripture. And what I'm doing with it is, is using it as a means to study the rest of the book of Corinthians. Because my conviction is, and every week I find more people that agree with me, so they're right too, that, that every problem that dogs this incredibly broken church is ultimately addressed with their absence of love. Now, I I can clearly defend that theologically, right? Because Scripture says that the two great commandments are love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So if that summarizes all the love, all the law, all of obedience, then anytime you disobey God, it is a failure in your love, right? Either a failure in your love of God or your failure in love for other people. So it's an easy thing to argue, but, but traditionally when we study 1 Corinthians 13, we're tempted to turn it into a nice ditty we read at weddings. Now, I'm for weddings. I got married a long time ago, and I'm happily married, and I'm grateful that I'm happily married. Any day I go home and the locks haven't been changed, it's a good day. That's, that is my standard of life. If I go home and the locks haven't been changed, it's a day of celebration. That's all I'm looking for. I'm pro-weddings. But oftentimes, we relegate 1 Corinthians 13 to a sweet little thing we read at weddings, and we all go, <sighs> but the problem is, it's not a sweet little passage. It, it, is, it is, in many ways, the Apostle Paul's ultimate club to, to get our attention of the way we struggle with obedience. Because, because when, you, when you look at the Corinthian church, it's famously the worst church of the New Testament. I mean, the Corinthians made everybody else feel good about themselves, you know? They had, uh, preachers all over Asia Minor would say, well, at least we're not Corinth, right? And, and, but in spite of that, in spite of that, Ultimately, all of their failures were failures of love. So what I'm trying to do is, as we go through these different attributes of verses 4 through 7, then to look at how he applies that in addressing the issues of, of the Corinthian church. And oftentimes, he intentionally has chosen vocabulary to make it clear that that's what he's doing. So if you, if you read, and I'm going to read it every week, uh, we're going to read it in the worship, I would encourage you to memorize 1 Corinthians 13, I think it's that significant. Let me read to you again the qualities of love from verses 4 through 7. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not envy. It does not boast, and it is not proud. Those are the two we're going to talk about today. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. I am convinced that if you and I mastered these verses, we would be, our lives would be revolutionized. I am convinced that the body of Christ lived out these verses we'd have to lock the doors because people would be coming so much. Ultimately, the follow, the, when we fail in the Christian life, it is, you can argue it's a failure of dependence upon God, absolutely, but it is also a failure to obey God as it relates to these issues. As one writer said, rather than being a hymn glorifying how wonderful love is, this text becomes a subtle commentary on what is rotten in Corinth. 
And today we'll look at specifically, it is not boast, it is not proud. Now the word that's used for boasting here is only used here in all of the New Testament. And it clearly means boasting which is self-serving and, and put it, effectively puts down other people. So while we know that's what it means to get a bigger picture of what it means in the broader sense, you have to go to another word that's used more often of boasting throughout the New Testament. And one of the th things you realize is not the word that's used in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, but the idea of boasting is not always bad. There is, there is a place for pride in that is good. There's a, a pride in your people, your family. There's a healthy pride. And one application of that is a very familiar passage from the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. This is what the Yahweh says, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts, boast about this, that you have understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for in this I delight, declares the Lord. So scripturally, there is an appropriate sense when we boast in who God is. What are we doing? We are acknowledging his greatness, right? And, and that's a healthy thing. Even in 1 Corinthians, boasting is used in a good sense. Chapter 15, verse 31, the context is the, his preaching on the resurrection. He says, I face death every day. Yes, just as surely I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. The apostle Paul says, I brag about you. Now, does he brag because they're a great church? Probably not so much. But he brags about the grace of God in their lives. They are a demonstration of God's grace. The, the more we grow in as Christians, the more we see everything through the lens of God's work. You ever thought about that? The more you grow as a believer, the more you see everything through the lens of God's work. So that it, it's not just because I worked hard, it's because God blessed. It, and even the bad news, it's not just because I have a problem, it's because God has a plan. The, the more you grow as a believer, the more you see God's hand in everything. So boasting can be positive, but at two different times, the word for boasting that I mentioned is used uh, instructionally in the Corinthian church. Chapter 4, verse 7. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you didn't receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? The Apostle Paul in chapter 4 is getting at the essential idea of stewardship in the Bible. According to Scripture, everything we have is a gift from God. Anything that's good comes from God. All, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, according to the Bible. So that anything we have that's good, how could we boast about it? Because we didn't do it. You never, ever noticed how subtly we fall into that? I've always said that when I do well, I boast because look how hard I worked. And when I do badly, I complain because look how unfair everyone is around me. You know what I mean? It, isn't it easy to fall into that out of our insecurity that we, we boast about things that are actually gifts? And as the Apostle Paul is making the point that everything, everything, did you hear me? Listen, everything good in our lives is a gift from God. Our health our opportunities, 
our family. That's why sanity is always grateful. If you're grateful, you're being sane because you're seeing truth for what it is. You're seeing all that God has done for you. Hugely important. So the Apostle Paul is saying when you boast of anything, you forget that it's all a gift from God. But the verse, verses I want you to see as it specifically writes the boast, boasting is in chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Now, this is not a sermon you preach when you're candidating at a church. Listen to what he says. Not many of you were wise. <laughs> Isn't that great? Can you imagine going to a first church and says, you know, y'all weren't very smart. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. In fact, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. I think he's talking about us. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. It is God's gracious gift that allows us to know Christ who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What do we have to brag about? The goodness and greatness of God. The more you know the gospel the more that should be the element of your pride. The goodness and greatness of God. The extent of his mercy, the extent of his kindness, the extent of his love. So that the definition of yourself is not your good looks or your wisdom, your accomplishment. You are defined by something that no one can ever take away. Because that's the problem with the other things we build our identity on, right? They can all go away. I mean, all of us who are older remember when we were prettier, right? Skinnier, smarter. But what's the problem? Over time, those things kind of slide away, right? What, what can no one ever take away from you? The love of God. No one can ever take that away. So, so that the ultimate thing to which we ought to build, on which we ought to build our identity is, Jesus loves me. Isn't that the essence of the gospel? In the essence of the gospel, that God so loved the world that he gave his only God, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The whole point is we're, the actions of God are defined, not based on our, our accomplishments. They're defined by the fact that I'm the beloved. God loves me. God loves me. I could never earn his acceptance. I, I could never go beyond, let me use a deeply theological term, being a knucklehead. Lost and dead, according to Scripture. So, so what do I have to rejoice in? His grace. 
That's the gospel. The only means by which I have the acceptance of God is, is through Jesus' work on the cross. He died on the sin for the most unworthy, resurrected on the third day, so that the soul means that I have security in him is what he's given to me. So what can I boast about? Well, but isn't it great? Some of us would think, well, the, you're tearing me down. No, I'm I, I'm helping you see that when you build your confidence on that, nothing can take it away. You ever wonder how the great martyrs of the faith survived? You ever wondered how people in, in persecuted countries keep going? You ever read descriptions of what Christians in other parts of the world have to go through? And you ask yourself, how could I do that? I'll tell you. You can't take God's love away. You, you cannot take away the fact that God loves you. So boasting is torn away by the reality that everything we have is from God and especially our life in Christ. There are at least two, there are many, but two uh, Biblical examples of boasting that got someone in trouble. One of them is Hezekiah. Turn in your Bibles to Hezekiah chapter 3. That was a joke. There's not a book, Hezekiah. But all of us fall for it, right? Because Hezekiah, and we know it's a biblical name, it's, it's bound to be a book. And, well, he is a biblical guy. He was one of the, the kings of the southern kingdom. And he was one of the good ones. There are no good kings. In the, some of you are still giggling. I, I'm not going to tell that you've got your Bibles out. I, but so, no good kings in the northern kingdom. They all failed. They all disobeyed God. There were a few good ones in the southern kingdom, and Hezekiah was one of them. And he had a good life. He was a good king. He reigned well until the end of his life. You know what he did? Emissaries from Babylon came, and his, he got a little boasty. So according to Scripture, it's 2 Kings 20. He, he brings the emissaries in and he shows off all the wealth of Jerusalem. You know what happens? The Babylonians come back and they get it all. Because that's what happens when we take pride in something. Oftentimes, that's the very thing that God will take away. Of course, the, the most common example of boasting in the New Testament is Peter. Uh, remember Peter in Mark chapter 14, as well as other passages, Jesus says to the disciples, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep be scattered. But after they had gotten up, after I have arisen, he says, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter says, hey, even if everyone else falls away, count on me, Lord. Now, James and John, you know, they got that selfish ambition thing. You know, they're trying to get the best seats. They're, and Nathaniel, what has he ever accomplished? Thomas is full of doubts. Levi is a tax collector. But, and Andrew, my little brother. But you can count on me, Peter says. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, today, Tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. And Peter couldn't let go of it. You ever thought about how foolish it is to argue against God? You think maybe he knows? I've done it. Peter says, even if I have to die without you, I will never disown you. And of course, you know the story. 
before the rooster crows three times, he says, I don't even know the guy. Ultimately swearing. What's the problem with bragging? It puts confidence in something upon which you cannot depend. When we brag about ourselves, we betray the fact that we're so mortal and fallen, right? Now take heart, John chapter 21, one of the most beautiful passages about God's grace in all of Scripture. Jesus restores Peter by asking him three times, each time recognizing the three denials, and he says, Peter, do you love me? And in doing so, Jesus communicates not just to Peter, but to all of us, even in our failure, God still gives grace. Even in our failures, even in our, especially in our brokenness, he still gives grace. So the one thing we can boast on is the gospel, not that we are somehow better. By the way, this is hugely significant in how we relate to the world. How do we relate to the world? Look at me, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Christian. No, no. The whole point of the gospel is look at me, I am forgiven. Look at me, I am loved. Because when we draw attention to ourselves, what are we doing? We're drawing attention to someone who's going to disappoint I've said more times than I can count here, don't put your faith in a pastor. We will disappoint you. In fact, I used to have an electronic sign on my credenza that said disappointing someone every day. It just seemed to summarize the job. I had a pastor walk in and see it, and he said, just one? Just one every day? Um, he knew me. Um, the only thing worthy of our hope is Jesus. The triune God is the one upon whom we can depend. So first of all, he says, don't boast because it's ultimately going to fail you and everything you have from God. And then secondly, he reply, reply, is, is not proud. But it's a special word. Many of the older translations says, say, is not puffed up. Remember that? Is not puffed up. You know why it translated that way? That's what it means. That's why it translates. It, it literally means it's not puffed up. Now, I was a business major in school, B-I-N-E-S-S, business major. And so grammar is not my strongest suit. You know, I, I had to learn grammar when I went to seminary and learned Greek. But, so, but I do remember onomatopoeia. I just like saying onomatopoeia, which means that the word sounds like it's it, what it's saying. Buzz is onomatopoeic. It, it, and, and puffed up in onomatopoeia, because pride doesn't sound like puffed up, but it does look like puffed up. What happens when we start getting a little cocky? We kind of stand a little taller, kind of stick our chest out a little more, get haughty eyes. Uh, my grandmother on my mother's side was special lady. 1962, yes, they did have books then. She gave me this book on Aesop's fables. And let me read to you The Frog and the Ox. Some little frogs had just had a harrowing experience down at the swampy meadow, and they came hopping home to report their, their adventure. Oh, Father, said one of the little frogs, all out of breath, we'd just seen the most terrible monster in all the world. It was enormous, with horns on its head and a long tail and hoofs. Well, child, that was no monster, said the frog. That was only an ox. He isn't so big. If I really put my mind to it, I could make myself as big as an ox. Just watch me. So the old frog blew himself up. Was he big as I am now? He asked. 
Oh, Father, much bigger, cried the little frogs. And again, the father frog blew himself up and asked the children if the ox could be as big as that. Bigger, Father, a great deal bigger, came the chorus of the little frogs. If you blew yourself up until you burst, you could not be as big as the monster we saw in the swampy meadow. Provoked by such disparagement of his powers, the old frog made one more attempt. He blew and blew and swelled and swelled until suddenly, pop, the old frog had burst. And Aesop says, self-conceit leads to self-destruction. Puffed up. Puffed up is not puffed up. We call it pride. Y'all know that I love Winston Churchill. He, he was famous for his ability to, and this is not necessarily a biblical trait, but he, he was one of the greatest insulters of all time. He said about one of his political enemies, he has delusions of adequacy. Um, one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. Chapter 8 uses the same word. And one of the problems that there are so many in the Corinthian church, but one of the problems that had caused division was how did they respond to meat that was offered to idols? Corinth was a city that was covered over with um, idolos, idol worship, idolatrous worship. And, and so, Part of the worship of idols would be to take in sacrifices, and they would take an animal to the temple, for audit, whichever god it was, the, the priest would look at it, and then would cut it open, kill it, and then they would often look at the organs of the animal to predict the future because it was really magic, it wasn't true faith, and, and then they would sacrifice some of it, similarly to Old Testament sacrifice, and what was left over of the sacrifice would be used to feed the priest and the worshiper. But so many brought it that they then sold much of the leftover meat to Safeway or Albertsons or Whole Foods. And the problem was when a believer went to buy meat, they didn't know if it had been sacrificed to an idol or not. And it had, been a, it had become a point of contention, a point of division in the church in Corinth. So in chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says, Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. What's the knowledge he's referring to? Uh, he's referring to the fact that, now we all know that idols aren't real. We all know that idols aren't real, right? We all know that. We all know that. But then he uses our word, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those that, who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Good basic theology, right? For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords in Corinth as we worship, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came, the Creator God, and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. He said, we know that truth. Verse 7, though, says, but everyone doesn't know that. 
Everyone doesn't know that. What happened? They were, they were leading people to faith in droves in Corinth. And new believers were coming in, and they hadn't taken Theology 101 yet. And, and, and they still had the memory of participating in the idolatrous worship. And so for them, engaging in meeting food, eating meat offered to idols seared their consciences. It, it was related to what they had done. And for them, it was a really painful issue because of the lie that had been in it. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. I mean, obviously, food doesn't bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat it, no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your right does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat whatever is sacrificed to idols? And so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died, did you catch that? For whom Christ died? What is, what is the value of other people? It's destroyed by your knowledge. So when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Jesus. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so I will not cause them to fall. What is pride here? It's being so puffed up by my correct attitude, by my knowledge that I'm insensitive to how my actions are hurting other people. See, we, sometimes, maybe, we can get so caught up in being right that we forget to love. Sometimes we can get so caught up in being right that we forget to love. Chuck Swindoll has a line. I don't know if he originated it. Most, most preachers steal our stuff and hope that no one recognizes it. I was reading a commentary on Romans a while back by a famous preacher up in Chicago, and I read the first page of, a, of a, one of his chapters, and I said, I think I remember this. I checked a Ray Stedman commentary. He took it word for word and never gave credit. I thought about writing him, but I thought, eh, you know, he'll, he'll, God will take care of him. Um, <laughs> So I don't know if Chuck originated it, but he has this wonderful line, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People don't care about you, how much you know until they know how much you care because knowledge can puff up. It can make us proud. Uh, knowing a little can be very dangerous, right? You know, I spent 10 years at, at Dallas Seminary and 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 when I got there, it was the same with me. You get there, and, and you're the star of your home church. All the little ladies told you how smart you were. Your mother told you how smart you were. You got there, you know, you get in class, and, and you feel pretty good about yourself. And, and you'd hear first-year students pontificating, trying to correct the professors. That was always fun to watch. Um, they could eat them like candy corn if they wanted to. Um, what, what happens the more you learn? the more you realize how little you actually know, right? Um, a little knowledge can puff you up. That's, that's the pride that can be so dangerous. 
because, because a little knowledge can get us so caught up in ourselves that we don't see the needs of the people around us. And you had Corinthian believers who were in carelessly, carelessly hurting young believers by their willingness to make almost a show that they could eat food uh, uh, sacrificed to idols and showing no concern about what it did for them. That's pride. That's arrogance. That's being puffed up. Thank God Jesus didn't do that to us. You ever think about that? I mean, Jesus could have said, you know, I, I don't mean this sacrilegiously, but Jesus could have said from heaven, die for those people? Are you kidding me? Are, uh, them? With, with all of their failure and weakness and everything, I'm going to die for those people? I mean, he knew perfectly all of our failings. He knows all of our failings all the time. What did he do? He loved us so much he gave himself for us that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And, and, and the power of that love can change the world. How do we know when we've fallen into pride? One way I think is, is, is when we start looking at other people and comparing to ourselves. One of the great ways of knowing it's pride is when I start looking at other people and saying, like the Pharisee, well, I thank God that I'm not that, like that sinner. You know what I mean? I, I thank God that I'm not like that person. Uh, it, it, judgmental behavior is pride. Condemnation of others is pride. Uh, in other words, when we get away from the first thing we want to give someone is the love of Christ, then we need to ask ourselves, has pride snuck in? Because it's become about us. It's become about us. One, one of the characteristics of mature Christians is sometimes when you're around them, it's as if they're not there. Why? Because you see the love of Jesus. It exudes from them. Um, I, I told, I spoke in Dallas Seminary's chapel a few weeks ago and um, told the story about, I, in my years, because I was in the president's office, I met a lot of Christian celebrities. I mean, a lot of them, big names. The one that touched me the most was E.V. Hill. He was an African-American preacher in Watts. He went there right after the riots in Watts when all of that area was burned. It was a horrible time, and he took a dead little church and turned it around. But the reason he touched me so much is Julie and I had the privilege of going and picking him up at his hotel to bring him to commencement. And, and I mean, he was famous. I remember very few sermons. I hope you remember sermons better than I do. I especially don't remember mine, but, but I can remember the two sermons I heard him preach live like none other. He had an amazing gift. And so I'm in awe of this man, and I take him to Fair Park where the music hall where the commencement is, and, and he speaks, and of course just blows the roof off of the music hall. And, and then I'm waiting for him afterwards, and Dr. Hill, this famous guy, walks up to me and says, Mr. Wildman, uh, Dr. Tony Evans has asked if I would have lunch, dinner with him. Would it be okay with you if, if 
I, I don't mean to any way show you any neglect, but would, would it be okay with you if I went and had dinner with Dr. Evans? I was a nobody. Still am. Evie Hill's probably the most memorable preacher I ever had. He was a celebrity. But that, that humility displayed a love that I'll never forget. See, when, when our pride gets in the way, our love is hidden. But when we lead with our love, Jesus becomes the subject, right? That's why love is not boastful and it's not proud. One writer says, knowledge is proud that it has learned so much. Wisdom is humble that it knows no more. These three verses, Paul has given a very gentle rebuke to those who gave too high a place to knowledge. Love rather than the knowledge, is the Christian guide. How much is boasting and pride a part of our lives? I mean, not overt. We're all smarter than that. We've learned how to subtly brag, right? How much is boasting and pride part of our lives? Can I tell you before God, it not only harms your ability to love others, it robs you of the joy of resting and the love and grace of God. Because what else do you need? And no one can take that away from you. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that our egos so quickly get in the way. A lot of times it's out of our insecurity and we, our fears and our, our struggles and we try to cover it up in these little ways that are so inadequate. But it's so silly that we do it when we have you. Uh, Father, forgive us that rather than love, we so often are concerned with how others view us. And teach us what it is the love we were loved, the way we are loved, the way Jesus loved us, and the way the lives are changed. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.